He has gone uh, dripping with baptismal water to the mountain of temptation, where after withstanding the wiles of the devil, he returns home and Luke says he is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that descended on him like a dove at his baptism in the Jordan, the same spirit that accompanied him out into the wilderness of temptation and ministered to him in that dark place is now seen in him in ways that capture the attention of everyone. And now the boy who was raised in Nazareth has come home to Nazareth. And we find him in the synagogue, a relatively small space but the very center of Jewish life in this particular time, and indeed, even down to our day today. Whereas in the temple, the central act of the temple is always the sacrifice at the altar. In the synagogue, the central act is always the reading and proclamation of the text. So Jesus takes his place as all Jewish males were allowed to do, reading from a scroll. He's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, we are told, and he unrolls it and he looks carefully for the place he wants to read. It's toward the end of the scroll. In our Bibles, it is Isaiah 61. So Jesus unrolls for a while, looking, and then he finds it and He reads from it in a way that impresses all the people. He's probably holding a device called that looks kind of like a magic wand that was actually called a yad, a pointer which helped him to keep his place as he read and ensured that the parchment was not touched as he went through his reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. He has anointed me to bring good news to He has sent me recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a very good reading by all accounts. His presence is profound. And he slowly rolls the scroll back up and gives it to the attendant. And instead of standing at a pulpit like we do here and now to preach, he sits down, which was the posture of the teacher and the preacher in Judaism at that time. The crowd is wrapped. They lean even further, waiting for the proclamation. And the eyes of all in the synagogue, writes Luke, were fixed on him. Notice that wording. He he could have said everyone was paying attention. He could have said everyone was paying careful attention. He could have said everyone was looking at him. But he intentionally chose the strongest words possible in the Greek language. All in the synagogue, all in the synagogue, he said had their eyes fixed on him. 
And you know that moment, don't you? Or I know I know the moment where the Bible is is lifted and it's closed now and and the preacher says the word of the Lord and the people respond, thanks be to God. And the preacher shuffles the pages and clears the throat and looks up to meet the eyes of the congregation as the congregation's eyes are looking up to meet the preacher's. It's a pregnant moment. And no one captures this moment in writing better than Frederick Buechner. He, he's, he says, when the preacher climbs into the pulpit, and I like that language because we have a pulpit in which you have to climb, it switches on the lectern light. We even have one of those right over here. It spreads out the note cards like a poker hand. I don't really have that kind of taking notes. He says, maybe even the vacationing sophomore is, who is there only because somebody dragged him there pricks up his ears for a second or two along with the rest of them because they believe that the person who is standing up there in a black gown professes and stands for in public what they, with varying degrees of conviction or the lack thereof, Subscribe to mainly in private. The preacher in that moment, writes Buechner, represents Christ. He goes on to say all of this deepens the silence with which they sit there waiting for the preacher to work a miracle. That the preacher will somehow make it all real for them. They wait for the preacher to make God real to them through the sacrament of words as God is supposed to become real in the sacrament of bread and wine. And Beekner says this, which is very, very true. Nowhere else is the preacher as aware of their own helplessness and ineptitude than in that silence before the first word is spoken. I think of that sense of helplessness. And I think that sense of helplessness is there and the sense that I and anybody who dares to stand in a pulpit is is inept before the mysteries of God in Jesus Christ. I think the sense of helplessness is there because the stakes are so high. They are as high here today in January 2022 as they were when Jesus unrolled that scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and began his sermon. And the stakes are high because of what he says in that first sermon. The shortest, as Mary Sellers reminded us, the shortest sermon in the New Testament. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Today, good news to the poor. Today, release to the captives. Today, recovery of sight to the blind. Today, freedom for the oppressed. Today, the year of the Lord's favor. Today, not yesterday. Not tomorrow. Not some longing for a pristine past. 
Not some dream or something that is not yet a reality. Today, Jesus says. And so the stakes are high. Wouldn't you agree? We find out in next week's reading just how high they are for Jesus when that congregation that is so wrapped and at attention and so glowing turns on him and tries to throw him off a cliff. That's for next week. And the stakes are high for anyone preaching this text today as they were for Jesus long ago because there's quite a bit of evidence that today is not the day. Good news to the poor. On a random day in the news last week, I read about the conflict in Yemen. We don't hear much about that in the news these days. It's a war that's raged off and on for the better part of a decade between proxies, other nations fighting each other on that land, Saudi Arabia and Iran fighting one another over Yemen, and has resulted in what Doctors Without Borders calls the worst humanitarian crisis today. 17,500 civilians killed, a quarter of that number women and children. 20 million people are starving in Yemen, and 10 million are at risk of severe famine. Today, release to the captives today. As far as literal captives go, one of the most bipartisan movements in this country in a day when bipartisanship is so rare is over prison reform. The United States currently incarcerates 2.2 million people. And nearly half of them are nonviolent drug offenders. Accused people held pretrial because they cannot afford their bail and others who have been arrested for failure to pay debts or fines for minor infractions. 2.2 million. And when you think of others who are captive, not behind bars, but within their own selves, especially the opioid crisis that engulfs our nation among poorer communities in places like Appalachia. The idea of the release of the captive seems far-fetched today. Recovery of sight to the blind. When you think about blindness the way Jesus does, or seems to, is not only a physical reality, but also a spiritual condition. It's hard to imagine that recovery for that spiritual blindness is right around the corner. Religion in this country is far too often used not to open us to the reality of God's love and grace for all people, but rather as a justification for hate. Religion, far from expanding our vision into the vista of God's grace, crimps our sight, increases our tribalism, builds bigger and bigger walls between ourselves and the other. Just the other day, I was speaking to a colleague who announced that they had had it 
They had had it with, and they named a particular group in their congregation. This colleague is pastor of this congregation, naming a group within their congregation. And as far as they were concerned, they thought that group was no longer Christian, and they should leave the church. And they say they would hold the door open for them to leave. When disagreement, even strong disagreement, turns into banishment, it's hard to see how today there is recovery of sight for so much that blinds us. Interesting historical note, theologian Karl Barth in an interview, actual interview that you can see him on, the, on video, in 1967, he said, that Hitler's dream was that he could make everything so simple that was actually incredibly complex that he could get Germans to clearly believe that they knew the truth in total. That's part of the reason we use the word totalitarianism. That they could know the truth in total without any complexity And that because they believed they knew it, they could banish or kill all who did not fit into that totality, that truth. And Bart said in 1967 about his country in in the 1930s and 40s that all of Germany fell under the spell of that dream. Today, Freedom for the oppressed today. Our congregation has had firsthand experience with people fleeing oppression. In boats trying to get into Greece, across dangerous land borders into the country of Lebanon, on the United States border with Mexico. All in one way or another seeking to be free from bondage, free from oppressive and violent governments. And still they come. Today, the year of the Lord's favor, the kingdom of God, the year of Jubilee, where all are free today. I do not share these stories from recent news to try and say that somehow our times are worse than any other times, I think that's always a mistake. Because every era of history, every era of history could articulate its own list that was every bit as harrowing as the one I just gave to you. Rather, I show it, I share it to show that in every era of history, including our own, There is more than enough evidence to say that today is most definitely not the day. And yet, we cannot escape this proclamation. Not least of which because it comes from Jesus. The one we profess. He's the reason we've all gathered here today to worship. He's the reason everybody's tuned in on the live stream, we can't pretend he didn't say it. I just read it. 
or that he was somehow delusional. Today, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And I think everything hinges on that word proclaim. Jesus says, I was sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim that God's intention today is liberation, freedom, jubilee. And everything he did from that point on, from the people he healed to the ones he ate with, to the ones he challenged, to the ones he liberated, points to the fact that in him is the day that we have longed to see. In that same newspaper that I was reading, I'm, I'm one of those old-fashioned types who still likes to read a newspaper on paper. In that same newspaper, there was a story about a photo that made its way around the world. It went, it went viral. It was the first time, really, that I was seeing it, which tells you something about my presence on social media as well. Maybe some of you did see it. It was a, a Syrian man in Damascus tossing his son up into the air. And the son is smiling, and he is smiling up at his son. And in the background, you can see the devastation that's everywhere in Damascus where the bombs have destroyed and put so much into rubble, and yet they smile. The father's missing a leg. The son has no arms or legs. The father's leg was lost in a bombing, one of, of thousands. The son was born that way because his mother was exposed to poison gas while he was in the womb. And that photo went around the world and sparked a group of Christians in Italy to work tirelessly to get that Muslim father and son to Italy as permanent residents so that they could be fitted with prosthetics and live their lives in safety and freedom. That's in that same newspaper. And you remember the photo of that little Syrian boy, five years old, another Syrian, washed up lifeless on the shore at Lesbos, Greece. It also went around the world, sparked worldwide concern, and prompted our own congregation to travel to the island of Lesbos more than once. And I think about that A lot. How so much that we see in the news all around us speaks of the devastation of the day is not yet here. And sometimes you have to thumb through the paper or scroll through the phone quite a long ways to get to those other stories. The ones about people who are convinced that today is the day to proclaim in word and deed, good news to the poor. To proclaim in word and deed, recovery of sight to the blind. To proclaim in word and deed, the year of the Lord's favor 
the nearness of the kingdom of God. Each time we engage in such acts, whether they're near to home or far away, it is a proclamation. Each time we stand in pulpits like this or in Sunday school classes or in growth groups or by the bedside or on the public square proclaiming God's grace. A grace that restores and relieves, tears, up, tears down and builds up. That's done. That day is the day. Because we are pointing to the one about whom we say in the prayer at communion, who has come, who is risen, and who will come again. Jesus Christ. Wherever He is proclaimed in word or deed, that day is the day of which He preached so long ago. May it be so for all of us. Amen.